But yeah, good morning everybody. Welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. Um, let's go ahead and get started today. So we hope you're, uh, all is going well and that you've had a good week so far. Um, please make sure you read the announcements up on top, just as a reminder. And then let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And let's go ahead and stand for God's reading, one fifteen. Over the reading of God's Word. All right. Ephesians one fifteen says this, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of Him so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the work of the might of His strength." And he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subject under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you that we're gathered here today to fellowship, Lord, to uh, exercise, Lord, uh, the, the gift, Lord, of fellowship and to glorify you in all that you do. We thank you, Lord, that you are the builder of your church, and we thank you, Lord, that we are, as believers, are strived and are pricked in our hearts, Lord, to, to serve you well, Lord, as your slaves. Your master, you are the master, Lord. And God, I just pray that we have a good day today, that our ser uh, sermons and our preachings and teachings and the singing of music, Lord, all worship you in truth, Lord, and that um, you protect us, Lord, from any error, anything that may try to come in and destroy or distract us, Lord. We thank you. We love you. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Father, we come to you and we just thank you for your goodness and your mercy that was extended to us most extravagantly through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider just the magnitude of all that you have given to us through relationship with you through him, that we let that be the degree by which we are willing to share it and to give it to others. And we thank you for these reminders. We thank you for what we see in your word that continually just draws us near to you, Lord, shows us who you are and shows us who we are, both who we are apart from you, and now who we are as those who are saved and called to be your children. And it's such a blessing, Lord, to be a child of God and to experience you and the fullness of your word. And I pray that as we divide it together today, that we do it in a way that is pleasing to you, that glorifies you, Lord. This work in our hearts as only you can to help us to understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Mark. As you take your seat, we're going to be continuing our study in chapter 1 and not really closing it out this morning, but taking a larger section than we normally do. 
I'll be reading verses 27 through 39. Our teaching will really begin with verse 29. But just to capture a little bit of what we discussed last week in our teaching of Mark, we're going to pull that in as well. Beginning with verse 27 of chapter 1, the book of Mark. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him went out to a desolate place and searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Connor, would you open us up in prayer, please? Lord, thank you for this day, for this place you've God's given us to come and study your word and worship you, Lord. Thank you for this gift of your son. Amen. Thank you. So just to quickly summarize what we had covered last week, I think verse 27 and 28 really give us a good lead-in into this morning's teaching because we see where things ended off as Jesus had been teaching with authority in the synagogue. He had cast the unclean spirit out of this man who was confronted with God's holiness, and as a result, the demon, his cover was blown, and he had to proclaim who he was in the presence of, and he knew that it was the Son of God. And so Jesus told this demon to be quiet. He didn't want this demon to be his agent, so to speak, And so he cast the demon out of this man, and the demon had no choice but to leave the demon-possessed man. And the people were talking among themselves. They were saying, what is this? This is a new teaching. It is with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, all his fame spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And that's what we left off with last week. And ask the question here, How long were these synagogue services? So how long was Jesus there among them, teaching and casting out this demon? Well, we have to go to historians to tell us a little bit about this. And remember that when we're quoting or citing historians or commentators or maybe world-renowned pastors, that we must check it against the Word. So understand this as just being from history's perspective here. But looking at the modern-day Judaism service, how how the Jews conduct their services in their modern-day synagogues, is that they would start early on Saturday morning, 
and they would end sometime around noon. So the duration of the synagogue service, according to historians, was roughly three to four hours. And I hope you're thinking to yourself, like, okay, well, we've got it pretty good. Owen usually only goes about an hour and a half. But uh, for today, I hope you packed a, a lunch. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to keep you that long, but you, you see how long the services lasted. And if they let out sometime around noon, then we still have a whole Sabbath day, a lot of daylight left in the Sabbath. And Jesus has already, in the synagogue, proven his authority over the scribes and Pharisees because the people were astonished at his teaching, which leads us to believe they weren't astonished at the scribes' teaching as they attempted to expound on the, on the reading of the Torah. But what we find from commentators there is that the scribes were really not teaching the Torah necessarily. They were more quoting the rabbis of their days the ones that would have been the, the Spurgeons or the MacArthur's of our time. It would be like me stringing together a lot of quotes of them. That is what is said by historians of what the scribes were doing. It was not teaching from their own authority. It was, it was teaching from the authority of those that were popular at that time. But Jesus taught from his own authority. And being God, the people recognized immediately this, this word to us is truth. It is pure. There was something powerful in the word that he was speaking. It's it intimated his, his power by his word and his authority even over the best of the worldly teachers that they might have had present in their synagogues during that time. But then it goes even further than that. Jesus demonstrates his power over the supernatural by casting the unclean spirit out of that man that was confronted by the holiness of God and he was exposed or this demon within him was exposed and diva Jesus shows his power and authority over the supernatural. And then today, we're going to see that Jesus possesses the power to heal those who are physically afflicted, those who are sick, those who are ill. And we see that in the case of Peter's mother-in-law. Not surprisingly, our text begins this morning with that word, immediately. I don't remember how many times, I think I counted it up at the beginning, how many times the word immediately is used. But verse 29 starts out, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, immediately isn't the only word that is used depending on what translation you're reading. If you're reading from, I believe it may be King James and New King James, instead of immediately, they would have as soon as. And if Any of you are reading from the American Standard Version. I don't know that we have many of those um, available, but the word that is used in place of immediately here is straightway. Straightway, he left the synagogue. And I kind of like that word because it almost indicates a laser focus of our Lord. The ministry that was before him, the work that was before him leading to the cross. I mean, this is something that had been established from the beginning of time according to the divine counsel of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus knew what lay ahead and he was always about that work of the fulfillment of what he would do through the cross and through his resurrection. But there was a lot to be done in between. And so the Lord was immediately uh, about this work. So I think it is less about Mark's liking this word and just using it often, or maybe his ADD, but it was more about the pace of our Lord's life. Jesus was either teaching, preaching, he was healing, 
He was casting out demons. He was praying. All these things indicate that Jesus was always active in his ministry here on earth. There was never any slack time in the life of our Lord. He didn't take a vacation from his work. There were times where he had to get away from the crowds to rest his physical body, to feed his physical body, because being fully God, he was also fully human and subject to those weaknesses that we have uh, to feed ourselves and to have rest. But there was no sabbatical that Jesus would go on or request from his disciples. His was a life of service. And there was a sense of urgency in everything that Jesus was doing. Turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 50. I'm going to read from my ESV translation, and then I'm going to look at the King James Version as well of this verse from Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Because herein we see the urgency of Christ's ministry, knowing the work that was before him, and always about the work. Verse 50. Luke 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That's the ESV translation, this urging, the sense of urging that he had to go about and do this work, to preach the message, to heal and to cast out demons. There was always purpose in things that he was doing in the King James Version, but I have baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished that it was a straight ahead for Jesus. There was going to be no obstacles in his way, nothing that would inhibit his, his mission, so to speak. There was a fixed purpose for our Lord, and he would not be distracted from it. And I find this somewhat convicting to view the ministry of our Lord and then compare that to that of my own. And I think for all of us, we and I included often think about the downtime that we have ahead of us. After a hard day's work, or maybe after engaging in the ministry, we think about maybe sitting in front of the TV for a couple of hours and eating something and then maybe taking a nap, and we're always kind of looking forward to these intervals of rest, but that was never the case for our Lord. He is the ultimate example for us in life and in deed. And I'm not saying that our bodies don't need a little bit of downtime and especially time with our families because we need to minister to them. I'm not providing you the justification or an out here because we see that in Jesus' life, he was always doing something for the glory of God. When Jesus was lost in Jerusalem at the age of 12, You remember his parents had gone out looking for him. They didn't know where he was, and they find him there in the synagogue. He's debating with the rabbis, and they're even there at the age of 12. They're amazed at the things that he is saying. But in Luke chapter 2, 49, Jesus responds to his parents saying, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Even from the age of 12, we always kind of put a marker at the time that, you know, where Mark starts at the beginning of his earthly ministry, thinking it's around 30 years old, but all the way back until he was 12, and even before that, probably, he was always about his father's business, knowing what his mission was. I think if you were to do a survey and ask people in today's society, even in our modern churches, what they are working towards, it would probably be something like, a life of ease. I'm seeking financial freedom. Uh, I'm seeking to get away from it all or getting to you know, take on my, my hobby that I've always wanted to do and now I have the time to do it. How often would you hear, and even of Christians today, 
a response like this, to commit myself more to the work of the Lord and for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And I hope that that would be our sincere response of all of us here today, but I don't think you would find this among many, especially in our culture, the unsaved, but also among those who are saved. John Piper writes this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I think I've quoted it here before. It's been some time. But he says, Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells us about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't buy into it. Don't waste your life. Let's look at verse 29 and 30. We've already read them, but it's worthy of repeat. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. And immediately he told him about her. So the miracles are really going to start to begin to roll here very quickly for us. Jesus goes directly from the synagogue. We're still in the same day that we left off with last week. And now he's entering the house of the disciples that we have already been introduced to. Uh, Several Sundays ago, the four that were with him, those who he called on the shores to Galilee into the service of the ministry, those who were going to be his students and he would make them fishers of men, now school is in session here. And these four always are first mentioned before any of the other apostles. And I don't know if that indicates that they had a special fellowship or intimacy with God, that they were continually with him, and maybe the other eight were not so much, but for whatever reason, the, these four are mentioned first. That is Simon and Andrew, and then also James and John. Well, we see first that uh, Peter was married because he has a mother-in-law. And we find a parallel there in, in Luke. And if you want to turn there to Luke chapter 4, verse 38, holding your place here, and then also we'll hold our place there in Luke. And it's good to kind of fill in everything by going to the other synoptic gospels. But here, uh, Luke would say that she was suffering with fever. And the Greek word is suneho, meaning suffering. And Luke, being the physician that he is, would probably have a a very accurate description of her condition, which is why he includes this word, and that's a medical term that means to continually be gripped by something. That this was a day in and day out suffering that she was having to do. She was tormented by it. This was not a low-grade fever. 
This was a very high-grade fever that she had been suffering with in more than just a day or two. And with our modern medical advances, we know that fevers are caused by some sort of infection. It's our body's way of trying to fight off that infection. And we have remedies for a lot of those infections today that we treat, and then the fever will go away, or sometimes our bodies will just heal themselves and the fever will go away. But at this time, they didn't know what to do for her. They couldn't give her some Tylenol or some ibuprofen off the shelf. They didn't have a lot of modern medical advances at that time, so they seemed like they were helpless. And so immediately, straight away, they told Jesus about her. Obviously, having witnessed some of the things that they had witnessed up to this point, there was a recognition that Jesus had the power within him to heal her. There was hope in them that this was the man that could do it. This was the Messiah who had healing power within him. So there is this aspect of intercession that they make on behalf of the mother-in-law. And I'm not going to insert the token mother-in-law joke here because mine is probably watching online. So we're just going to skip that part. I'm not going to do it. But uh, here, again, Luke says in chapter 4, verse 38 of this, he uses the Greek word erotao. And this is to indicate that they're asking Jesus to heal her was more than just a light request. It was an appeal. It was them begging for Jesus to heal her. So concerned and so much love they possessed for their mother-in-law that they were interceding and they were making this appeal to Jesus, please heal her. And God, Jesus being God, hears our pleas. Our pleas for for mercy, here the plea for help, to help the mother-in-law. And their requests here express the concern that they had for their loved one. It also gives us an example of how we should imitate this, that we should immediately go to the one who is able, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an all-powerful God who we can request for Him to heal, and if it's in His will, He, by His own power and authority, um, will heal But more than that, he soothes the brokenhearted, and he responds to the spiritual needs, not just the physical needs that we have. Verse 31, and he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. It seems that Jesus does something so simple here. He takes her by the hand, and then he lifts her up. I don't see him dipping his hand into some holy water and sprinkling it on her as if there's some powerful um, powerful substance that could heal her. He doesn't uh, then speak some magical incantation over her. He touches her, the first thing that he does. And I think she was hidden away somewhere in the house because they have to tell Jesus about her first. And then they likely take Jesus to her. And I'm sure they didn't want anybody else to potentially get this fever. But it also could have been, and we'll look at this a little bit later on, is they may have considered her unclean. That whatever it was that was causing this fever was some form of uncleanliness because the Jews were very superstitious about that, believing that maybe it was sin that caused her to have that. She was defiled, so why would anyone want to touch her? I mean, I believe they had compassion because she was a loved one, but there's these things that you can infer, but maybe that's, you know, that's not in Scripture. So 
receive it as that. But we see the Lord touch. And a touch from Jesus was all she needed to be restored to health. He touched her. Luke says that he rebuked the fever in her. And then it says that he lifted her up. Have you ever noticed how Jesus' miracles are instantaneous and they're complete and total healing? And this is good for us to know and see because we have so-called miracle workers today that claim to have power in their words to heal people, but often what you see is something that is staged where they will bring someone prepared beforehand onto the stage who maybe not is even physically ill or they're not crippled and in a wheelchair, but they're in a wheelchair so that they can prove that they have this healing power in themselves and they're attempting to either do it by their own authority, thinking that sincerely they are deceived and they have this power to do it, or they're just doing it to draw attention to themselves, they're using it to extract money out of people. But what we never see is a complete and total healing by these supposed miracle workers. I'll call them charlatans. And to us, if we know our word well, then the motives are not very well hidden. They're they're deceivers. They're manipulators. Jesus performed miracles by his own authority, which was evidence of his being God. But when he performed a miracle... There was nothing that was 10%, 30%, 50%. It was complete. It was instantaneous. It was total. It says the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That was her first response to this miracle, as she began to serve them. Jesus ministered to her first, before she could then minister to others. And this is always true. We are the ones in need of the rescuing. We are the ones in need of the restoration. And what I see here is a picture of our salvation. Because just as in salvation, Jesus does the work. God does the work of saving us. He does the work of regenerating us. He does the work of sanctification in us. And I love the intimacy here. Jesus could have made her well, Just by speaking the word, he could have snapped his fingers and, you know, it could have happened that way, but yet he took her by the hand. And we will see in Mark chapter 8, verse 23, there with the blind man, he first took the blind man by the hand. The Talmud was the Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, and I, I alluded to this earlier, and it would forbid touching of anyone who was unclean. And so having a fever she would have been perceived as unclean. So Jesus shows his authority. He's not concerned that he's going to get this disease, that he's going to be afflicted by it. With with boldness and his power and authority, he reaches out, he grabs her hand. So the touch did not defile the healer, but he healed the one who was defiled. When Jesus touches someone, something happened. And it was always something that was miraculous, it seemed. Jesus lifted her up. He touched her, and then he lifted her up. 
and I, I kind of get this image in, in, in my head of, you know, Jesus coming into the room and her laying on a sick bed, and the you know, beds at that time probably were, weren't very high. I think we have beds today that almost stand up to your head, it seems, but here she probably would have been laying in a pallet on the floor, so Jesus would have had to stoop down to grab her hand to touch her and then to lift her up. And isn't this also a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ? Is that we are not the initiator. We do not work our way towards salvation, but yet the Savior touches, the Savior lifts up. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In Ephesians 2a, is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of our own doing, it is the gift of God, so that no one should boast how gracious the Savior is in this moment. As I was studying this verse, one of the songs that came to mind is an old hymn song called Love Lifted Me. A couple of the verses say, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the seas heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Souls in danger look above, Jesus completely saves, he will save you by his love. Out of the angry waves, love so tender and so true, warrants my soul's best song, faithful loving service too, to him belong, love lifted me. She was lifted up, and she served. And there was no better way to prove her healing than to go and to serve and to act upon this gift that she was given, that she was granted. So it proves that she was healed, but therein, I think, lies another aspect of our salvation, is that we are saved to serve. When we are healed spiritually, when our hearts are cleansed from sin, that we live our lives to serve the risen Lord. In Romans 6.22, Paul writes, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And sadly, I see that, or I think, maybe is a better word, that Christians, many today, don't know how to serve. Because rather than service, one word, it's serve us. That it's the God that serves us and not us serving Him. It's a false gospel that I believe is preached a lot today. A message that is not a serving God but of Him serving us. The Scripture says that we were bought with a price, that our redemption was paid by Jesus' shed blood, and that He is not our genie in the bottle, that we rub and He comes out at our every whim and beckon and call and serves us. But sadly, I think this seems to be the message that is promoted in the prosperity doctrines that we see today. We don't have to be part of those movements, though, to have this idea about our salvation, and it's a wrong idea. It's a false gospel, in a sense. God does not save us for Him to serve us. He has already done everything for us, and now we live to serve Him. And I quoted that passage from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but I left out verse 10. And I think that's critical here, is to see 
what is required of us when we are saved, because we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not of our own doing, it's the gift of God, it's not a result of work so that no one may boast, but verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He lives in us. It is our joy to serve him with a heart filled with love and gratefulness for all that he has done for us. He's not a killjoy, he's not a, a taskmaster, but rather there is blessing in serving He has touched us. He has lifted us up. He has restored us. We are changed, and thus we serve Him. Verse 32, Mark chapter 1. That evening at sundown, they brought to Him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. News had spread. The news had actually arrived there before Jesus had arrived there. We saw that in verse 28 where at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And the picture is that we have people streaming in one after the other looking for for Jesus who they knew could do it to free them of their earthly afflictions and he could also release people from their demons. And he was probably accompanied by, or they were probably accompanied by friends These friends may have been there moved by compassion. They wanted to help those who were sick and afflicted, so they may have carried them there to Jesus. But then you have also the looky-loos who just want to be amazed by the miracles, and you probably have the scribes and the Pharisees who always follow behind, who are looking to criticize things that Jesus are doing. So they're probably there just to screen the whole process. So when Mark says the whole city, it's a very large crowd. Most commentators say that Mark is using hyperbole there because all of the city couldn't have gathered there at one time in the front of Peter's house or within his house, but they were streaming by and they were coming and being healed by him, so maybe the whole city did have an opportunity to at least pass by him. So why, why was this crowd not there when Jesus had first arrived in the city? I mean, he could have been inundated immediately because they had already heard of the the news about him that he was able to heal, that he was casting out demons, well, it's important for us to come back and remember that the Sabbath had not yet ended. And these people were very obedient to the Sabbath laws. And it wasn't until that evening at sundown, is what the Scripture says. So there's a double reference here to time in that it was evening and it was sundown. The sun had gone down. Historians tell us that the Jews would not... uh, consider the Sabbath over until they saw the first three stars in the night sky clearly. That was an indication, okay, the Sabbath is over, and now we can go on and and not be subject to all these Sabbath laws. But at this point, healings were legal, and people could travel. But it shows you how bound the people were to these oppressive legalistic laws that most of them were imposed by the Jewish leaders as restrictions upon the people. There was a certain amount of distance you could travel during the Sabbath. You couldn't carry a burden if you were to travel on the Sabbath. That means you had to leave your backpack behind, or you may have been the one carrying a sick person in, and for you to even, in showing compassion by carrying a sick person to the feet of Jesus, that would have been a violation their Sabbath law, and so that superseded any compassion that they had. Such were these legalistic demands on the people. And Jesus had already broken the Sabbath, hadn't he? 
He healed Peter's mother-in-law already. And Jesus would violate their Sabbath laws uh, quite a few more times that we'll see. We see it in all the Gospels where Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. He would tell people to take up their mats and carry that burden with them on the Sabbath to prove that they were healed. But Jesus is our Sabbath. I think this is another way that he establishes his deity. In Mark 2, verses 27 and 28, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not for the not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We'll have a much more in-depth teaching when we get to that chapter here in a couple of years. But <clears throat> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus ordained the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest under the new covenant. And the contrast here that I just want to bring out is there's the applied principle of legalism and its restrictions compared to the grace of our Lord and the mercy that he is showing and demonstrating through his helping these people, healing them of their afflictions, and casting out demons from them. Verse 34, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I think Mark here is also clearly distinguishing as he did last week, the the difference between the physical illnesses and the demon-possessed. And I had said something about this earlier where many would believe that because you were sick, that that was some form of sin in your life. And so that sin, almost in a sense, was the demon possession. So they would combine the two as if they were um, oppressed with a physical affliction and they had sin in them and it was that sin that was causing that. But here, I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Now, I believe there's manifestations that if we have sin in us, sometimes that will result in, in physical symptoms, but it's not always the case. And Jesus healed them. Matthew tells us here in his parallel account, Matthew eight sixteen, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Luke mentions Jesus' effect on the ill in verse 40 of chapter 4. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So we put all these accounts together, we see that the eel, those who were sick, were healed simply by the touch of Jesus. When it comes to those who are suffering with a physical affliction, Jesus was tender with them. There was that intimacy that we saw with Peter's mother-in-law where he would touch her and he would lift her up. The love and the compassion that is seen there, but when he confronts the demons, he, he doesn't pull any punches he, has, he is moved with compassion and concern for the person, but he's confronting the demon within the person. And he confronts them with his, his powerful word. He, re, he rebukes them. He casts them out. And there again is that distinguishing between those who were physically sick and those who were demon-possessed. The way in which Jesus approached the healing of both and showing his power over the, the temporal and over the, the supernatural. When it comes to demons, Luke adds some clarity here in verse 41 of chapter 4, if you're still there. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. When we looked at the one 
demon that was cast out in the synagogue last Sunday in Mark. Mark describes the one in the synagogue previously very similar, that they would decry that you are the Son of God. And the counts line up perfectly with all these synoptic gospels. We saw that in Matthew, we saw it in Luke, and now we see the same uh, account in Mark, and it shows us the harmony of the gospels here. Now Matthew, he describes the demon, casting out of the demons first, and then the healing of the eel, but they're both combined together that there's no discrepancy among the gospels in everything that's going on here, only that some of them add different details that the others do not, but it perfectly fits together. But notice here again that Jesus did not permit the demons to speak. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They knew him. Because he was the Holy One of God. And remember, his holiness strikes against the unholiness of the demons within. And they respond to that and they they cry out. They know who he is. And Jesus would shut their mouths. The word we looked at last week was that Greek word that implies that he put a muzzle on them. So powerful and authoritative was he with his word that they couldn't speak anything else if he demanded it of them. But he did not want the demons to be his publicity agents. He didn't want want them to be the heralds of of his power and his miracle. If If anyone was going to pronounce him as king, it would not be the ones who would not submit to him as king. They could not. They knew their destruction as well. They knew what awaited them. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So Jesus, not only being fully God, we understand he was fully human and he would succumb to the physical weariness like we do. People constantly around you, imagine what Jesus had done that previous day, people pleading with you to heal them, confronting demons and casting them out. And so how tired must our Lord have been? How physically weary must he have been? And yet, what does he do? He gets up very early while it was still dark and he went to get alone. He went to a desolate place. And the word used there for desolate place is the same word that John the Baptist uses for wilderness, going into the wilderness. So he gets alone to be with his father and spend time in prayer. Early morning refers to the last watch of the night, so this could have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's pretty early, especially when the day before you've put in a lot of work (laughs) into healing and casting out demons and just listening to the people. But how intentional are we to go to God in prayer? The first thing, when we rise in the morning. This is another, for me anyway, it's a convicting example that our Lord provides us because it causes me to question, you know, what what am I more prone to do after a busy day of ministry or after a busy day at work? I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, some of us might want to watch a movie, we might want to take a nap, but next time, maybe try sitting at the feet of Jesus and seeing what a difference it can make in resting your weary body, but also your weary soul and taking time with the Lord, the very first thing. I mean, honestly, I feel like I've got to have my first cup of coffee. 
I've got to kind of read the news, and then after about 30 minutes, okay, now I can spend time with the Lord, but it really shouldn't be that way. And this is something that kind of hit me hard, is like spending time with God in prayer. <clears throat> the more we work, and this is a quote by a commentator, so take it as that, the more work we have to do with men for God, the longer we ought to be at work with God for men. Great success does not release us from the necessity of still waiting upon God and going to Him in prayer. Time with God is of the utmost importance, and it keeps us spiritually strong and ready. Verse 36 and 37, And Simon, those who were with him, searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So exhausted from the day prior, the disciples may have slept in. I don't know, but... You know, maybe they woke up at 11 o'clock, they're looking around for Jesus, and the people are probably banging on the door, wanting more miracles, and saying, hey, where is he? And so in response to the people and their demands, they go out searching for Jesus. And we're not told how long they were searching for him, but they eventually find him. And this is what they say, everyone is looking for you. They wanted to get the people off their back. They were responding to the demands of the people. Were the disciples first concerned for Jesus? Did they say, hey, I see you're praying, hey, let's, let's pray together in, in their humanness. And they responded to more of the people's demands and the physical demands of the people. But you contrast with, with Jesus, who just wanted to be with his Father. That's where his rejuvenation was found. And the people are wanting to see more miracles. And now with the Sabbath behind them, they didn't have to wait till evening this time. So we've got a full day of miracles ahead of us. Bang on the door, let's get this going. They, they were attracted to the miracles. The people wanted to be healed. And it's, it's obvious to see the reasons why if we're physically afflicted, we would want to be healed if Jesus was present with us and, and um, healing people. This is how we would be. And how eager we are to be set free from physical oppression and sickness and probably less concerned about the sin-sick hearts and the terminal condition of all of us. And I think it is the condition of the soul that we need to be more concerned about. Jesus, heal me from within. In 38, this is his response. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The people were asking where he was and obviously desiring for him to come back and do more of these miracles. And Jesus did not respond to that like the disciples probably wanted him to. Let's come back and, and heal these people. We can't do it. We need you. But remember, Jesus was fixated on his mission, and he's ready now to move on to the next town. Jesus desires to go and preach, and that's priority number one. He came and said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. In actuality, priority number one was praying. Right, Praying to the Father in preparation now for his preaching to the people. He had been now made, uh, re- had been refreshed, and he was readied by prayer to now go out and preach. I think it shows us that no Christian will grow and mature in Christ-likeness without the word, that the preaching must come first. He doesn't talk about going into the other town that I want to heal there. I want to cast out demons there, although that's what he would do. But he said first that he wanted to preach the word. 
In Luke 5.32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How did he do that? He did that preaching the word. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, preaching the word. And salvation came only when people responded in repentant faith to gospel preaching. And that is why I came out, is what he says. There was preaching to be done. And he went throughout all Galilee, verse 39, went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus carried out exactly what he said he would do. He didn't cave to the demands of the disciples and the people, um, but yet he went and he did what he said he would do. Jesus being God, he's 100% faithful. He doesn't shrink in his faithfulness that when he says he will do something, he'll do it. But we, in comparison, are weak and faithless. But he never fails to do what he says he will do. And he went through all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. And that word preaching is the word caruso, which was used to describe the official activity of a herald that was going before someone, usually someone of royalty, to proclaim their coming. And I think the irony in this is that Jesus is heralding the good news is the fact that he was the good news to mankind, that Jesus was the personification of the gospel that he was preaching. And we are also to proclaim the good news, that that is our part in the work. That is one of the parts of the work that we do is that we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We proclaim God's word into the wilderness, so to speak. That is his truth to us. And proclamation is our duty. The Apostle Paul, I think, would articulate it this way. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 15. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The preaching in verse 39 of Mark, is established as the primary function of Christ's ministry in Galilee. This was then followed by the casting out of demons. And there was a Q&A session at the Contend Conference that we went to last uh, weekend before last. I guess it was, maybe you're tired of hearing me referring back to that, but one of the questions asked was, how does a Christian cast out a demon? Do we still have the ability to cast out demons today? There seems to be those that truly are possessed by demons still in our society today, we might encounter them, we might try to say it's some kind of mental illness, but yes, there likely are people still possessed by demons. Do we have that power and that authority to speak a word over them to cast them out? And the response was, we don't have the same power that the apostles and that Jesus did to literally just kind of cast them out with our words. But what do we do? We share the gospel with them. We give them the good news of Jesus Christ, because one cannot be inhabited by a demon if they are saved. 
When one becomes saved, they become, there's the, the temple, the sanctuary of God by His presence of the Holy Spirit within us, and the demon is not able to inhabit the, the life and the heart of a believer, so preaching the gospel to them is the, the way in to relieving them of that demonic possession and just speaking God's truth. Paul would say in Romans 1.16, he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, we speak the gospel. Jesus being the embodiment of the word because he was the word, nothing but truth proceeded from his mouth. His authority spanned the physical through the temporal and into the supernatural. So Mark has made very clear for us over these past couple of Sundays that Jesus establishes deity and rule over mankind, over the earthly teachers, over the scribes, over the Pharisees. He was authoritative over them. He was authoritative over the physical illnesses, and we see that in the people bringing those who are ill to him and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And he is powerful and authoritative over the supernatural. Even the demon, Satan himself, is subject to God's Word. And Mark clearly illustrates the subjugation of all things unto Christ. I think it was Colossians 2, that all things were made through Him and for Him. He's the ruler of over all things. So I want to end here just with something that I was thinking about this morning as a challenge to me, as a challenge to our church in light of what we have learned today. Have you surrendered to God's sovereign authority over both realms? That He is the ruler over the physical and the supernatural. And if you are saved, then faithful service should be unto Him. Do you believe you have been saved to serve? Or do you, or have you turned that around in your mind that I am saved, so now serve? Do you think service is only for the elders and deacons and church leaders, or is it only for a scheduled day of the week? Is your service for your recognition or for the glory of God and His kingdom and His eternal blessings? Has the busyness of life drawn you into the mindset that you need your downtime and prayer can come later? Saying things like, I need to rest, or maybe even using ministry as an excuse. In your life, how many other things take priority over the study and preaching of God's Word? And so those are some challenges for me that I wanted to share as challenges for you as well. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together in your Word. And it's a blessing to get to grow in the knowledge of who you are and who we are in light of all the attributes that you possess. There are some things that we too possess as, as an attribute that is similar, but we can never hold it to the degree that you do, Lord. Your, your faithfulness and your goodness and your kindness. And then there are things that we could never possess, the omnipresence and your omnipotence, your power, your omniscience, your knowing all things, God, that these things are of you and not of us. And you have clearly displayed for us that you are supernatural and you are powerful and you are authoritative over all these things, over all of our earthly teachers, even some that we hold in high regard. 
Help us to never put their teaching above yours. You are powerful over the supernatural, the things that we can't see, the battle that is being waged over our hearts, that you have authority and you're sovereign over those things. You are almighty. Father, help us to just submit in our minds and our hearts to your rule, that even in our hardships and our sufferings, to our moments of elation and just outright joy that you are in all of those things, God. And help us to count it all joy, regardless of where we find ourselves in those circumstances. For you have a purpose in all of these things. Just bring the necessary conviction to our hearts, Lord, that is needed to correct us, to align us with your purpose for us, to wake up in the mornings to go to you in prayer, to be continually at work, to be straight ahead in our urgency to share the gospel with those who are lost. We love you, Lord. We proclaim that here today. We ask just for your sustaining power. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.